Right. So I'm speaking to Dr. Carolyn Jackson, who is a pediatric surgeon trained at the University of the West Indies. And Carolyn, boy, it's so it's so wonderful to have her on this with me because she's such a wonderful influence on me, even as a medical student, which I won't bore people with. And <laughs> also when I was pretending to be a, a resident in surgery, she was very instrumental and helped guide and helped me feel like the world wasn't out to get me because it wasn't the most wonderful time for me. So that's another story for another time, though. She does her business many places. I think it's Caribbean Tots and Tots to Teens. Right. So it's... there, there's Caribbean Caribbean Tots to Teens. It, it has two components. Yes. There's the surgery and diagnostics, which is really me and, and a few of my colleagues who work with me. And then we have a wellness center where we have where I have um psychologist, nutritionist, and a lactation consultant that just really focus on child wellness. Adorable. And the location, Carolyn, is um we're on the Peace and Paul Church compound. Oh. So we're we have a building on the church property. I was trying to figure out where this place was. So Yes, so very wonderful, very experienced. I won't tell her you how long, but let's say she's very experienced. I don't want anybody working out anybody's age. So <laughs> she, but there's something here, isn't it, that I want to ask about that hopefully we'll get to in a minute. But even up to today, and I see a lot of pediatric emergencies, which really got me thinking maybe I could talk to you about some of these things, Carolyn. Mm-hmm. And one in particular today, for example, which we can we kind of start here is the a young man who got burnt with hot water. I think he could be twelve. Yes, so he just entered high school, so twelve years old, and about three quarters mm-hmm. of the back was burnt with hot water, accidentally by a relative, mother not very happy. Patient was not in a lot of pain but the skin was blistering and so on now she had stayed with the child a few hours before i think actually a day before she got to me because it was the night and it's early this morning in the morning i saw her so the question to you is that sort of thing so this is a question that i get asked when to go to emergency room when so a patient like that, when would be, should that patient have come to me or should have gone to A&E, that kind of thing? Okay, so burns are so common, yeah, so common. And it, there's some nice little um, memory gems when, you, when you're at home in the moment, in the panic, that that's good to remember. First of all, if you burn any delicate area, you need to go to the emergency room. So by delicate area, I mean like genitalia. A lot of times children would be sitting down, you know, and if the if the hot water or whatever the hot thing is, gets on the genitalia, gets in the face, gets on the hand to impact the fingers being able to bend. Those are the really delicate areas. Go to the emergency room because it, the the complexity of trying to repair that if, if, if it goes bad is so difficult you, you want to be in specialist hands as quickly as possible um for the rest of the body now the the memory gem that i use is if you 
that your hand is about or your the palm of your hand is about one percent of your body of your body surface area. So if you the area that is burnt is less than ten palms, and we're talking about the palm of the person who was burnt. So if it's a little kid, you're going to use their little palm, not mommy or daddy's big palm. Yes. So if it's more than 10, you need to go to the emergency room because the risk of, of dehydration from the wound and the risk of infection in just in terms of the area is higher. If it's less than 10 palms or less than 10% of the body, then it, it's fine to be managed um, at home and, and with your family doctor. But definitely the delicate areas are the ones that concern me the most in terms of getting to the emergency room, even if it's in the middle of the night. So the everybody with Google this and they're going to encounter this depth of thickness issue. They shouldn't, as a non clinician or uh, for lack of better words, layman, try and puzzle that out. You know, for me, I would say no, because even as clinicians, sometimes what looks superficial by day two, you realize, hey, this is deep. This is deeper than I thought. So I I don't, the thickness to me is not so critical to the immediate management. The immediate management, I think it more depends where is burnt or how much is burnt. But, but the, uh, estimating the thickness as a layman can be really tricky. Yeah. And blisters, we know, in the old days, we used to say blisters mean it's superficial, but we now understand more that sometimes even deep burns will blister. And when you pop the blisters or you de-roof them, you realize below is quite deep. So the 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 layman assessment of the depth is so unreliable that I would not, I would go for it. I don't know if you know, do you know, do you have like a layman rule that you use with your patients? Well, I, I really... Not specifically, I as based on what you guys taught me, the when they're in pain and it's it's bigish, <laughs> and I try to do all the tormentor. There's something called the rule of nines, which is although I'm far removed from it, I try to make a mental note and I look at how big it is. If it looks a little halfway infected, I I do refer I. I tend to, I'm very conservative. So this patient, fortunately, had no pain. And she had done something. I'm not sure what she put on it. It could have been antibiotic cream. But by the time we got him, there was a certain area that was lifting. And he literally was quite fine. He was more upset with the individual, even though there were pain. I was quite miffed because I think... I'm telling him that he has to miss school and he never liked that at all, you know, because, you know, in October and this is new school. So, and so, no, so, I, so that, that was my general curiosity as it pertains to I think you, there are some other systemic signs as well. If you can look for dehydration and that sort of thing. But I don't know if anybody should really wait the day with, uh, such a long period as in this patient uh, maybe if you have a lot of confidence I suppose <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the other question I had for you Carolyn they, 
In my grandmother used to tell me I must put egg white on the wound. Ah, you yeah. know, when, once you brought up burn, that's something I was going to mention yeah. as well. So that people have a lot of stories about different things that they've put on burns and it healed beautifully, you know? Yeah. And the things range from A to Z. But the truth of the matter is immediate treatment of a burn must involve removing the heat, whatever it is, and cooling the skin. The most effective way to cool is running water. Cool running water. Now, people have a variety of things that they have used to replace this cool running water. Some people use honey. Some people talk about flour. Some people talk about egg white. And all of those things can um, pull heat, you know, but definitely they're not going to pull heat as effectively as cool running water. If you can, and cool running water is also more comfortable a lot of times than say, for example, ice or butter, which can, which can um, burn. Some other things can actually add to the, to the painful sensation that, that the patient may be feeling. Yeah. But cool running water is the way to go. I, I would never tell somebody that the egg white did not help because I'm sure it did, but the cool running water would have helped more. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And the any time period for that? For the... As quickly as possible. As quickly as possible. You want to ideally you want to keep the cool running water until the sensation of burning has reduced until the person no longer feels like they're being burned but depending on how how critical the situation is or how young the patient is you may want to look about transporting them to hospitals so if you have a, a young patient for example losing cloth pampers and they're burst to the the lower body and and you're worried about the nature of the injury you're not going to keep them in the sink until they're cool you're going, mm-hmm. you're going to move with them but mm-hmm. for an older child like for example this young man who you're talking about let him stand under the shower and let the cool water run until it's no longer burning to him you know um or sometimes if it's like if it's the hand or something like that you can put the hand in a basin under the sink and just let the water run like how we um, defrost our chicken. <laughs> yes. it, it is the most effective way to cool the area. And then once, once they feel like the sensation of burning is reduced, then you can now determine, am I going to, and it takes a little while, you know, it can take five minutes, 10 minutes to really stop physically burning. And then you can say, well, is this something that I need to go to the hospital now? Or is this something that I can manage at home and, and go see my doctor when the sun rises? Yeah, and there's some of the good reasons to go or seek some medical attention because sometimes to address those things are a little tricky. And then mm-hmm. they're weak yes. so much. And I don't, some of those things, it's good to make somebody eyeball them. I, I agree. I think any burn is good to have somebody see it, you know, within. 12 to 24 hours, there's really, really no reason to go beyond that. Just even as a baseline, so you can be sure of what you're doing at home. Yeah. And just to minimize the scar problems, minimize the contracture 
and make sure that the, the, the joint or wherever it is is going to function normally when it heals. Exactly. And for completion, if it's severe, sometimes the... Uh, well, I, I think it's really plastics does that work where we cover them. The... So depending on where it is on the body and how big it is, I will, I will, and how cooperative my patient is. I we I will cover some areas and and we change the dressing. We we can do like a wet to dry dressing, or we do the dressing in layers so it can cover it. And you change it every other day, or you change it every three days, depending on how well we can control the area and the child in question. Um, for the most part, I like them open because dressing changes can really be painful. You know, can really be painful, but. If it's a situation where it needs to be covered for safety, for to protect it from whatever contamination, then I do cover them. And I actually have some patients who I teach the parents how to do the, the wet to dry dressing or they use um, the impregnated gauze and then the regular gauze and the parents but at bath time take off everything, fully bathed, including the burn area. And then after the bath, they know how to clean, how to dress, and how to cover back. So particularly for kids going to school, you know, that and like your young man, a lot of kids really don't like to be school. They like, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> you know, new one is a new school, and yes, you know, he's, yes, a, he's so... a young boy, so girls are at school. It's a quiet school, so who knows? You know, a lot of maybe he he you don't know if he goes with the dressing, he might get a few new girls. You know, <laughs> <laughs> use it to his advantage. <laughs> exactly but, right. But but I do teach parents to cover and I do cover sometimes, although my ideal situation is to leave it open. But particularly for the kids who are going to be going to school, covering can just make transportation and, and, and be that school a little easier. There's that medication, Flamazine, which coincidentally is a little hard to get, that the thinking is it's quite good for Yes, it is. Ah. It's it's my go to. It's my go to for parents to use. Um, I quite like it. I don't think you need a prescription to get it. It slows down the chance of contamination, and it really enhances the skin forming back. So to for you to move from that pink fluffy tissue that bleeds so easily to a more shiny silver tissue that the skin cells can actually grow on. And the flamazine definitely helps. It's cool. It doesn't burn. Um, and very few people have any allergic reaction to it. So it's, it's a great drug. Yeah. So they, <laughs> I noticed that the, the pharmacists have been telling me it's a little short now. So I tend to, and this is me, I generally don't know what the answer is to this. I, the, I, I tend to write out a Bactroban because of that. Bactroban is an antibiotic ointment. But mm -hmm. what, do you have a, another uh, a backup to the flamazine? So I do use Bactroban, uh, Bactroban ointment and Fusidin ointment, and specifically the ointment, not the cream, on a burn. Um, both of them I, I will use, uh, particularly on the face. I go for the antibiotic ointment more than the, the flamazine because it can crust and, and um sometimes you can get a little pigmentation, you know. But 
the other the other option would be something like um Safatul or if if we're gonna cover. But if we're leaving it open, the flamazine or the antibiotic ointment is is good and it's not let me just say here that it's not every and any antibiotic ointment is appropriate. You know, so you have antibiotic at home, check with your doctor before you use it all over the body because burns absorb very easily. They absorb a lot and it's not every antibiotic that is going to be appropriate. Definitely antibiotics that contain neosporin are high, high risk of developing a sensitivity reaction. So I don't use it at all on burns, you know. And sometimes, uh, depending on the age of the child, tetracycline is not really, it can be absorbed and affect the bone and teeth development. So you want to really check in with your doctor before you start plastering on the antibiotic ointment. Mm-hmm. But definitely Bactroban, Fusidine, those two are quite safe. And and usually once I show a parent how I want them to put it on, we, don't, we usually don't have any issues with that. Excellent. But I'm... Um, I don't know if it is if it's the war or is COVID, but there are a lot of common drugs that we are struggling to find now, you know? Yes. A lot of things. And every week I discover something else that I can't get. <laughs> yes, it, it's really that one. So they that one is and they they call us back and Lasco has a version of something. That that one is more, but it's not the active ingredient in flamazine. So I said, I said, boy, I don't know that one so well. So I always say, well, if it could go back to man, I'd prefer that. And then, you know, I get into this discussion with you. Oh, it works good, doc. You must try it. <laughs> Maybe I'll try it in a very small area, but not this big, big <laughs> an area, you know. But, uh, okay, so I know you are very busy. So I want to get to a couple other things. I also get a lot of hernias. There is that hernia by the belly button. They call it umbilical hernias. And I'm sure a lot of people know that they, they tend to close by themselves. Sometimes those things get stuck, and that's a very troubling situation. I saw one like that uh, a few could be weeks back now, and at the central hospital. And if you could go through what exactly is going on in that situation, what you would do for that patient, that hospital? Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, navel hernia is very, very, very common. About nearly 15% of Jamaican babies are born with a navel hernia. It's, it's mm-hmm. much more common in, in peoples of African descent. So, we have that going on strong here, you know? <laughs> Um, and as you said, most of them close, 90% will close by the age of four. Um, but so there are two sets of problems. You have those kids who they pass four and it don't close and giving them problem. But I find that the more significant problem is actually with the younger child where it is trying to close. And then what happens every, every time the child coughs or they cry or they, passing stool you know they push out a little loop of intestine into the navel and then when they relax it slides back out and when they push again it stick out back into the navel and when they relax it slides back out but when it gets stuck what happens is that because the area is trying to close it's trying to do what we want it to do it might 
pinch the intestine while it is out, while it's pushed out under the skin and pinch it in such a way that it can't slide back in to the belly. And then what happens now is not just because the intestine is pinched, but it can cut off the blood supply. So all of us know if you put an elastic band on your finger, everybody did this when they were in primary school. Put an elastic band on your finger and you see how long it can last, you know? <laughs> and it, in a very short time, it starts to hurt because you, you, think you cut off the blood supply. And so it's the same thing for the kid. If When you cut off that blood supply to the, to the intestine, it's very painful. You can get vomiting, you know, and that's just because of the pain. They can get vomiting. They can. They they will be unable to pass stool that because the intestine is now cut off, and um, in the worst case scenario, there is the risk after four to six hours that the intestine can actually puncture. It can actually die and and puncture, and then you end up with a situation that's just like if your appendix bursts, where you know you're in a life threatening circumstance. So even though Navel hernias are so common, you know, the the risk is there. And so it's something that parents need to understand. You know, if this thing is stuck, what do I do? Mm-hmm. I usually tell parents the first thing you want to do is see if you can count the child, but saying stop the crying never works, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> put a little ice on the area, crush, crush an ice cube and put it in a towel and put it on the area to cool right at the base of the navel and sometimes if it's if it's cool it might the tissue will the swelling will go down a little bit and it can go in but the truth of the matter is if you think that navel is stuck especially if it's painful and they're vomiting then you need to go to an emergency room because after six hours that intestine can burst and it's just not worth the risk if you think it is stuck you have to move and you have to move quickly, you know, you have to move quickly. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when the kids come to hospital, we're able to calm them down and using little maneuvers and techniques and ice and so on, get that intestine back in. But if it's been more than an hour or so, we would actually keep that child without food until we're sure that that little lump of intestine has healed. Because if it is injured and the child goes and eats, yeah, again, it's, you have the risk that you can burst the intestine. So once it has been stuck, even when you get it to release, you cannot immediately give the child a drink, give them tea, give them whatever. No, they really have to be observed until we're sure that the intestine is healthy enough for them to eat. And then usually what we try to do is repaired hernia before we let them go home. Now with COVID, it's been a little more tricky because our operating time is, the, the demand and availability is, you know, very, very challenging, really challenging. And so sometimes we do have kids who we send them home and we try to give them the quickest possible time to get that hernia repaired. So they're not gonna, those children are not going to get a one year or an 18-month appointment, you know. Those children are going to get an appointment within weeks as far as possible because that sticking can end up being life-threatening and nobody wants that. Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned a lot of interesting things there which 
want to ask about. But since you you mentioned COVID, I, I suppose I, although I, I grow sick of it by the day, I, I guess we could talk too much briefly because I still get asked this. What do you think we have done as a country and what could have been done better and where were deficiencies and that kind of thing, your opinion of what occurred in Jamaica during the pandemic? So I let me hasten to say that I do not work in the government system, right? And I have the luxury, the privilege of being fully private. Yeah. So my observations of the government system are from outside, just like every other patient. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm gonna speak specifically, I think, to the to the child health component of it. Yes. I think in the early days when the demands of COVID were really mostly on the adult services, I really I have to big up and commend the Bustamante staff who kept things going kept normal services going as much as possible, um, knowing that ultimately the day would come when the children's numbers reached a point that we could not continue. But even when the adult services were solely focusing on managing COVID, the children's services were able to keep a lot of the regular routine specialty care available and so so the the pressure for parents who kid did not have covid you know was was alleviated a bit ultimately though just like the adults the time came when the covid numbers and the covid demand increased to the point that they could no longer offer um elective care uh, elective surgery anymore and and, and um, so that had to stop but I really I really really big up the guys who kept it going and doing what they could do when while while we, while they could um from a children point of view I think I think we underestimated how children would be impacted and we and so there's two levels of impact, those kids who actually got COVID. I don't know that we were really prepared to even test them, you know, the the swabs to test a newborn with the same swab that you use on a 25-year-old. Yes. Kind of tricky, you know? Yes, yes. And, and a lot of people just didn't want to test the little ones at all. And, you know, if, if we're not testing them, there's a lot that we're not going to know. You know, but I think over time we became more comfortable with, with with actually testing these kids and 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 being able to manage them. I think that um the fear factor was everywhere, but children were still getting reasonable intervention, reasonable care. Um, we had we've had some, I think, unfortunate circumstances where. COVID status unknown has probably unfairly impacted kids getting emergency care, but we've moved beyond that. And I'm really, I'm really proud of how we've been able to take on children with the unknown COVID status and still be able to offer them life-saving care, you know, in the in the most efficient and protective manner, protecting the other patients, protecting the staff, but still 
giving children care. You know, the, the whole concept of I don't know your COVID status and therefore I will not give you care is very disturbing to me. And I understand fully how somebody in healthcare could feel that way in, in the early part of the pandemic. But now we know how to protect ourselves in more ways than one. You know, you wear your correct fitting mask, you know, you change your clothes as you need to, you ventilate and you get your vaccine, you know. <laughs> you put all of those things in place. You really don't have a good excuse to not treat somebody because you're not sure if they have COVID or, or you are sure. You don't have a good excuse to not treat somebody because they have COVID, you know, so. I think there was a story like that, Carly, where one of the physicians, I don't know if that was conjecture, but had some, chose not to treat a patient that was in some amount of distress. And I don't know, I think the outcome wasn't, uh, wasn't a positive one for the patient, so. And it was a bit mystifying. And I think at that point, I could be wrong. I don't, I don't know if the vaccine was on, but we had, they had all the fancy gear. So it was a little troubling. And you mentioned the vaccination. Well, we never ever got to the kidney vac- vaccination out here, the pediatric vaccination. So your thoughts on that, the, the vaccination effort? Well, I, I'm a big fan of vaccines. I just need to put that out there from day one. Yes. I was, I, if they would allow me to stand on the tarmac yes. when that vaccine arrived, yes. I would be there to get the vaccine before they even get to write down the batch number, right? Yes. I firmly believe in the science of um, using a modified bug to prevent me from dying from the bug. And I have no intention of dying from COVID unless it is the will of the Lord. It will not be because I left myself careless. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. so I feel very strongly about that. You know? yes. I do. I'm very, very strongly about it. And I, th- one of the most unfortunate things is there are a lot of Jamaicans who got a lot of information about the mRNA vaccines which were being developed in the States, Pfizer and Moderna in particular. Yes. And they really latched on to this information as though the AstraZeneca was an mRNA vaccine. And I I even know healthcare workers who didn't understand that AstraZeneca is not an mRNA vaccine. Um, So a lot of the fear and a lot of the foolishness, I really can categorically say foolishness, that people were saying about mRNA. People thought it applied to every vaccine. And then you know, turned away from an opportunity to protect themselves and their community. Very unfortunate. Very mm. unfortunate. Mm. But you know what bothers me the most, Ryan? Mm. Those kids who belong to families that have money yeah. from two years old and up, they've gotten their vaccine. Yes. They've gotten it. Yeah. I can tell you, I have friends, I have colleagues, I have classmates from school, I have patients who the two-year-old, the three-year-old, the five-year-old, the seven-year-old has gotten the vaccine, has gotten the vaccine. And and the, the uh, how can, what is the correct word to describe that situation? <laughs> <be> diplomatic <laughs> but there is a there's an economic factor yes. that influences 
how not only access, you know, but thought process. And it's very unfortunate to me. It's very, very unfortunate. Um, and the the fear mongering and the misinformation has been very, very unfortunate. Um, and, and but as I say, I'm I'm looking forward to the day when they fly the gate for the younger ones and we give the. I mean, right now the risk of death with the current with the current variants is yes. pretty low. Yes. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily push for the younger ones to get the vaccine now. Yes. I mean, first of all, they all gone to daycare and sharing the virus with each other anyway. Yes. But the risk of death is, is much lower. But having said that, we have had children in Jamaica who have had a multi-system post-COVID multi-system problem. We have had children in Jamaica who have had renal failure, kidney failure because of COVID, you know, mm. children who need to get dialysis post-COVID infection. And nobody's saying that this is most of the kids, but the mm. truth of the matter is every COVID infection has a risk for long-term problems, yes. even when we're looking at these milder variants. And so to lay yourself careless, it's just irresponsible. It's just irresponsible, and I, I cannot embrace the, the the carelessness is the word I'm going to use because people really don't care mm. about how they protect themselves and how they protect their kids, and it's it's disturbing to me because COVID is alive and well. You know, mm. I I do a lot of elective surgery. I do very little emergency surgery, and my this month alone. Today is the 18th of October, and I've had two patients who have had to cancel the surgery because the happy, well bouncing around patient who come in the office and throw the toys and have a nice time mm. test positive when they test. And the only reason they tested was for the surgery. Mm. You know, they say I have a little sniffle, mommy said they have allergies, or you know, the AC blowing on them, so they have a little sniffle. But when you do the test, they're positive. So, COVID is still here. It's still alive and well. Kids get it. And not every child who gets it bounces back 100%. So mm. there is an element of caution that I think parents need to take. Um, even now. Even mm. now. It, uh, it was very surprising to me to echo your sentiments, Caroline, that even some of our colleagues who, not so much local colleagues, but even international, that are, are trained physicians, seem to be searching for attention is the only term I can use for it because some of what they would say and some of these videos and I said, but that is really not exactly all the things are. It's a very interesting study that even people, professional people are looking for views and likes. This is just my take on it. Mm-hmm. And, and and really almost very troubling because if you, I would tell people that you can just we we like so my resources and sources are like WHO and CDC, which they're not really pretty apps, but uh, you can read the stuff and they have a patient, usually patient part of our division of the websites, and you can actually go and review the information there so it's uh, there's several of these where they there's one where you 
they broke down the what's in the vaccines and why it's wrong. And I mean, 30 minutes well produced and several views, you know, eventually these things, of course, got pulled. I remember speaking to somebody uh, about this that I think it was Ramon Ascot, who is, you know, Ramon. Yes, man, right, and he right. did a nice, he did a nice uh, interview. Thing, I mean, and I watched the whole, but I mean, this thing does, I said, but this is Floyd very well. And the views, he got some views for that. Not his video, of course, he was interviewed. And then these other things would be like 10 times, 20 times that. And I was saying, but the one that should get the views, he's not getting much views. He went and he went through all of the, what, uh, you know, how, how these things developed and so on. So it's just, it's just an interesting study. They... The other remark I had, which I found interesting, they put so much effort into the marketing. It's just a shame, in my opinion, that we, this is COVID in general and the vaccines. I, I, I just wonder to myself if that, a lot of that marketing spend, even they themselves are wondering if some, they could just have invested in the healthcare professionals and the resources, the other resources, because it, it's the, the, the numbers for the vaccination could have been better even at this time, you know. And so you know, when you talk about that, to me, I I do think that public education, there's still a huge opportunity to educate the public. Yeah. Uh, but on vaccines in general, not not even talking about COVID vaccine, because the there is a mistrust of vaccines that, that is really bubbling under the under the pot there. Yeah. And People don't understand, you know, what vaccines are, how they work. I mean, for me in particular, as I said, I'm always focused on the kids. When you look at how the smallpox vaccine was created and children were taken, orphan children were taken, and they were used as a vehicle to carry the smallpox so that the adults in other continents could get the vaccine. Wow. I mean, it, I mean, when we look at how these things have come about and how our understanding has improved and how effective vaccines are and how we have moved the lifespan of mankind from 40 to 50 years to 80 to 90 years to the point where we don't want people to retire at 65 anymore. We want them to work to 75. All of those things come from our benefits of vaccines, you know? And the public education is weak. Public education is weak. Having said that, I don't know that mass media public education is what is going to be most effective. And the individual healthcare worker has to have the tools, the facts, and the training to dispense that information in a small group or a one-on-one. -on -one. You understand? Yes. The, the people who I was able to convince to consider the vaccines. I'm not going to say they necessarily took it, but at least they opened their mind to the possibilities. It was always small group and one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of our healthcare workers don't have the tools or even the facts, you know, to be able to talk. And as a healthcare worker, deliberately, not necessarily doctors, mm -hmm. because nurses have a significant role to play in public health education, they're the, I think they're the most important informal means of swaying public education. I really do.
And I would not leave out the cleaning ladies, the porters, the janitors, the security who work at the hospital. Every single person who is in a healthcare institution should have an opportunity to ask the questions, understand, and learn how to be able to communicate with people who have basic, you know, the basic, everybody asking the same basic five or six questions, you know? Yeah. How, how, and I think that's somewhere where our money could have been spent. I'm looking with the retrospective scope. Yes, you know, yes, 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 no. It's I, just I, we have to analyze it because, <laughs> you know, it's good to learn. Because I, I think about it a lot, you know, we're working in the things, so we, we wonder. I remember I, when it landed, I was telling somebody a similar joke that I would be helping them take it off the plane. They asked me if I could get it. I said, well, I, you'll probably see me out there. <laughs> with, with, Trust you know, me. With the minister if, out there. Collecting. If they were giving it back, on the tarmac, I would have been out there on the tarmac. I mean, there's no part of me that, that had any fear about taking it. The other interesting thing is, for example, in my office, we only had one person did not want to take the vaccine, right? And said person did indeed get COVID and, and had some... Really? had some complications yes and when i was trying to talk to them about how now we manage these long-term complications and they had some brain fog and so on and, and i said you know this is one of the reasons why the vaccine is so important because even if you do get covid yeah your chances of having these long-term things are less and they had never they honestly said to me i never read up about what the virus itself could do because I was so afraid of catching the virus. Uh-oh. And I thought that was so interesting because this is somebody who watched every video about the vaccine <laughs> but didn't had never heard the expression brain fog, wow. don't know about the long-term coughing, never knew that your taste could be altered permanently. So when when they had that experience where there's certain things they couldn't taste, they couldn't smell, I said that's one of the that's one of the complications that we know, you know, you have elderberry supposed to be good for that. Where I don't know where you're gonna get elderberry in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. But those were things that they just never explored out of fear. <laughs> and and I said to me that was a very instructive interaction because a lot of people pumping fear of the vaccine but we're not talking about what covid can actually do to you we're not we're not collecting data about long term long 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 covid in our country right now you know we're not we're not addressing covid <laughs> yeah i was speaking to jeffrey walcott that catches about and I said he does see them in his practice even up to this date. And it's a bit of a you, know, you, you try and you, you counsel them and so on, which I suppose a part of it would be from his standpoint. I'm not sure if he does some psychotherapy with them, but I think he also they also involve internists in management. But it is really that brain fog things are a real thing. I, I even at my practice I see a few people with that. that and it's they, a scary thing. It, uh, to me, it's a very scary thing. I need my brain to earn a living. If if my brain <laughs> if if I can't remember things, you know, it's 
nobody wants to go to the surgeon who cannot remember. <laughs> It's and I, and I have a I have a colleague actually who had fairly I'm gonna say moderate COVID. A colleague of mine had moderate COVID and and has actually not been able to resume work because of the challenges with memory and is now actively doing the memory exercises and so on and so forth to try and bring. But we don't think about how much we lose if we can't remember things at our age. You know, we we tend, you know, we know we know about dementia, but COVID affects your brain and it affects your brain in other ways too. You know, because you talk about Dr. Walcott, they said that up to thirty percent of people who have asymptomatic COVID can have uh, psychiatric issues. Not that they go mad. Yes. You know, the Jamaican people tend to hop there, but depression and anxiety significantly increased in people who had COVID, even when it was asymptomatic. So the, the virus affects your brain, it affects your nervous system. I mean, I don't understand how so many people take the chance. I I ain't taking that chance though. <laughs> yes. And I think this is the impossible people say, what's the big deal when mainland disease is killing more than well, the big deal is the sequel. <laughs> The, the fact that we don't know anything about it, the fact yeah. that it's respiratory, it's airborne, there's several big deals about it. You know, it's, it's really a very impressive thing. It's it's very, very impressive from a medical standpoint. You know, it's frightening. It, it's, it is. It's it the is. best word, you know. It's really, so I'm just grateful. Now, colleague of ours, Jeremy, Spencer, he came on the front page of the, the Observant said that Omicron was God's vaccine because he was of the opinion that Omicron has spread throughout the country and inoculated the whole population and protected everybody. So that that that's an interesting viewpoint. So whereas whereas I do think Omicron did spread phenomenally, you know, I really do think it did. Though the thing about it is we cannot tell today what variant will or will not be um, prevented because of Omicron. So right now, we know that the variants that are here now, Omicron is going to pr- reduce the chance that you catch COVID twice. I know people who have caught COVID three times, yeah? Yes. But we don't know what the next variant is. So to say, let's catch it in the hope that it's going to protect us, is a little bit careless, yes, <laughs> you know, yes. uh, because we read, I don't think that COVID is finished mutating. As I'm grateful that it has slowed down, but I don't believe it's the end. And and I worry about the fact that now that we're unmasked and more people are getting the other viruses, I worry about the potential of super viruses, you know, so. But I mean, it don't make sense to worry about that too much because there's really nothing I can do about it. Yeah, but but we can't be we can't be careless. I don't I don't know that Omicron is necessarily. I don't know that being infected with Omicron is going to be equivalent to vaccinated against COVID because we don't know what's coming next. Exactly, and uh, I think I think Germany was being a bit. I don't want to say melodramatic, but it certainly <laughs> caught some attention. Kind of tongue in cheek. <laughs> right. Because it was such a... Because I think he was remarking on that he believes in vaccines, vaccines work. He even gives vaccines at his practice. 
but there's been such a great challenge given these things. So he really, you know, he just threw that statement out there. And of course, that looks like that was plastered on the front. I want to ask him about it. So somebody actually knows. So it's an interesting point. I think I'm, I'm really eating up a lot of our time. So I, I want to ask a couple other things, Karen, to shift gears. You, you said something when we were talking about incarcerated hernias, about appendicitis. And I got asked this recently, can appendix affect children? And oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> you can get, um, uh, you can have appendix issues in the womb. Yeah. The ones you have an appendix, you can give trouble. Generally speaking, it gives trouble when you start eating because a lot of times the trouble will be from either something blocking it up or, you know, the stool passing, not passing efficiently beyond it. But you can definitely get appendicitis young. And I think about maybe about a third of all the people who require surgery for appendicitis will be less than 12 years old. So definitely, definitely children get appendicitis. It's usually quite dramatic. They let their parents know. Occasionally, you have kids who, for example, have chronic belly pain and kids who have allergies or taking um, have sinus problems. So they're taking antibiotics and they're taking antihistamine and they're taking painkiller and they're taking steroids. All those medications can mask appendicitis. So a child may complain of belly pain and it takes a day or two or three for somebody to realize it really is appendicitis, yes. But most most kids, when they have it, oh, they will let you know. You won't have to wonder what's going on. It's, it's a diagnosis that most of the time you can make it just by examining the child. You don't even need to do an ultrasound or anything. It's a clinical picture, you know. It's, it can be so crystal clear. There was some information when I was leaving surgery. I don't know if it's applied to the kids, Carolyn, that you could do concerted management in adults. Is that is there any role for that? Meaning that you don't actually remove it, you antibiotics and those that kind of thing. Is there any role for that in children? So using using antibiotics, um our conservative management is something that is pretty well described for kids, yes. The criteria, there are specific criteria for children who this would apply to. And uh, it, so it involves you have to do investigation, whether it's an X-ray, ultrasound, CT scan, whatever. You have to the blood do the blood test because the white count or the infection count has to be below a certain amount. It has to be less than a certain amount of days. So there's there's some very there's about five to eight pretty specific criteria for children that would fall under that category. Now, what is interesting about this management is even children who fall perfectly under the category and settle, right? So you're able to send them home. They didn't need any surgery. We find that within three to six months, they end up getting what you now call a recurrent appendicitis and end up requiring surgery. So whereas it can be a, let's say, a delay tactic, yes. you know, it is not necessarily a prevention tactic. So for the most part, 
once there is no contraindication to this child having surgery, we still go for surgery as the first choice. There are situations where, you know, it, it really does benefit the child for you to manage them delayed. And we can delay them. And I mean, I've, I had one particular patient who was not from Jamaica, fit the criteria perfectly and really wanted to go to their home country to get the surgery done. Mm. And we started them off on the antibiotic management with a clear understanding of if this thing is not working and these are the parameters, we're going to have to operate. And the child settled, went back to their country of origin and certain over there took out the appendix and it was inflamed it was sticky it was you know oh. but the kid was able to get back to where they safely you know without without being in harm's way so it, we don't use it that much particularly in jamaica where our support services are not as um freely accessible yeah. Because you do need to have the capacity to investigate, you know, repeat your ultrasound every day and repeat your blood test every day. And those the, that kind of support service is not so readily accessible to us, but certainly you'd have one or two circumstances where you're going to try because the situation is a little unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, though, if we think you have appendicitis, we're going to take it out. <laughs> so there it goes. So... The, I remember when you were talking, Carolyn, when, when I was working with you, we had a child, as a young child, so the child couldn't speak, but it was, the, there was this term, inconsolable child, and the tummy was tender. I'm not sure exactly how it ended up, but we ended up going in and it was appendicitis. In those younger children, how is it diagnosed? Really, you there are a couple of things. One, as you said, the inconsolable child. The child who has appendicitis, is they're gonna cry. They're gonna you're gonna know something is wrong. And then the parent usually comes in quite agitated because they know something is wrong, but they don't know what it is. And it's and it's kind of our role to determine what it is. The the location of the appendix, if it's a classic location, you can tell just from feeling the tummy. It's quite classic. But if it's not in a classic location, because even though we, we learned appendix is in the right, on the right side, in the lower part of the tummy, even though that's what we learned, the appendix can literally be anywhere. It can be up under your liver, touching on your lungs. It can be down between your bladder and your rectum. <laughs> you know, it, it, it literally can be anywhere. So sometimes it's not clear if it is, if it's not in the ideal location and, you really rely on investigations in that situation to kind of prepare you to say, this child has an inflammation in the belly. We know we need to operate, but an investigation can give us a little guidance in, ten, in terms of what we're going to be prepared for, expect. And then a, a, a CT scan, a good ultrasound can tell you, yes, indeed, this is the appendix <laughs> where you didn't expect it to be. Cool. Uh, I think I have one or two other things I wanted to, I would remiss because one of the first things I ever did with you was this, we did something called a circumcision. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that I get asked about, when can it be done? When is it advisable to be done? 
and where can they do it? So if you can answer any of those questions, much appreciated. So circumcision for for parental choice, right? Is a, is is a little different from circumcision for medical reasons. So some children will have particular skin problems or urinary problems, and we recommend the circumcision for medical reasons. Clearly, you're going to do it at that time because you want to solve the problem. But circumcision for parental choice can literally be done anytime after the baby is born. Okay. Now, when, it, when you're going to choose, if as a parent, you're going to choose when you want the child to do it, my general recommendation is the younger, the better. And, and there are several reasons and there are some age group, there are some age points that you have to consider. So we know that the Jews circumcise on the eighth day. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of the traditional religious things like that, they really stem from good understanding of the human makeup or the physiology, the natural functioning of human beings, even though at the time they weren't able to explain the science, the science comes afterwards and explains it. So on the when a baby is going to be born, everybody knows that birth is painful for the mother. But a lot of people don't consider birth is very painful for the child. Yeah? If you imagine your skull has to overlap and squish through as 10 centimeters space and then you and then pop back out i mean some babies actually have bleeding in their brain because of that yeah and and you're all along you have been your lungs have been moist and all of a sudden you're inhaling dry air you're in a muffled quiet environment all of a sudden you're hearing noise people shouting alarms going off monitors on your mother everything so it's a traumatic and painful experience shoulder problems when the shoulder for the shoulder to come out blah 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 Mm. so the body actually prepares the baby for the pain of birth and pumps out a lot of chemicals because cytokines or hormones into the blood system so that at a time when a baby is born these chemicals actually help to minimize the painful effect to the baby and those are hormones that the baby is going to pass out pee out and pass out over time so the first six weeks of life those hormone levels are high so when you do a circumcision in the first day the first week the pain to the child is significantly less than if you do a circumcision say for example at age one where not a thing from birth is in your bloodstream anymore you understand so there's physiological reason or there's natural defense that is in place for for um newborn circumcision to be less traumatic to the baby the other thing that is interesting looking at just the natural development is do you know that if you operate on a baby in the womb they're born without a scar so clearly we do not have the opportunity to operate on the in the womb in jamaica at this point at this point because we don't know what will happen tomorrow but the point of that is your capacity to heal, to regenerate, and so on, when you're a newborn, is phenomenally better 
than when you are one year old, when you are 10 year old, or certainly when you reach my age, right? <laughs> so when you do a procedure on a child in the first six weeks of life, the painful insult to the child is less, the healing capacity is better, uh, the general outcome is better, and the distress to the child is minimal. So from that point of view now, I tell parents, if you're thinking about it when you before you have your baby, do it in the first six weeks of life. In fact, I would say do it in the first two weeks, you know? When you reach six weeks, you reach in the end of that protective mechanism that's in place. Do it in the first two weeks. Having said that, if you didn't, and another advantage of doing it when they're younger, certainly before they can sit up, is you can do it with a local anesthetic. So we still use anesthetic, you know, even though it's a baby. Mm. I I use anesthetic. I, I don't do any procedure without anesthetic. So we did so, it. We did it. With but we, we do local anesthetic, but we don't have to put them to sleep. When they get bigger now, they're starting to be able to sit up on their own or certainly a bigger child, like a one-year-old, two-year-old, so on. That is not a child who is going to be able to keep still for a procedure to be done. And so you do have to put them to sleep. So another advantage of doing it younger is you don't have to expose the child to general anesthetic. Mm-hmm. Having said that, in 2022 in Jamaica, our anesthetists who are anesthetizing children have a lot of experience. They are very good at what they do. Um, but even on the best hands, you never know what intrinsic situation may be going on with a child, you know. And so if you can minimize the risk of a general anesthetic, then I think you're ahead of the game. So when parents, if a parent asks me before the child is born, I said do it in the first two weeks. If a parent comes to me when the child is one, I'm going to say, well, we can't do it now. It's going to involve a general anesthetic. There is an interesting age group, though, between, I'm going to say, about seven years old and 10 years old that I have found if the child does not want to have the circumcision, the psychological impact on them can be more. I, I haven't been able to identify any research that speaks to the psychological development at that age that may be related to um, gender development or I shouldn't say gender development because that's a gender issue but really I find that boys under seven they'll tolerate the procedure you know they tolerate the home care and the first five days it can be a little rough you look down and you see your best friend don't look like your best friend anymore Yes. You wonder what happened. Yes. You know, you miss your best friend. <laughs> and then usually by the end of the first week, you say, well, okay, yeah, you know what? It's my best friend still, you know? It look a little different, but it's still my best friend. And you feel good about it. But I find that um, after they pass the age of seven, you know, it can really be even more psychologically traumatic to them. This is, this is not in any book. It's not in any paper. It's just something I have found. And I tell parents, you know, if you're really thinking about it and you don't have made up your mind, make up your mind before, you know, before they reach that age. Mm. Um, if they if they reach that age and there's no medical indication, wait until they're a teenager and they can contribute to the discussion, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Mm. But the younger the better though. The younger the better. If your child is one, it's better than doing it. And when they're two, if they're two, it's better than doing it when they're five. The best age though is the first two weeks. Oh. So that that is some good information for me. I never realized that. So I will start to counsel. And I will use it as my reference, if you don't mind. <laughs> and the cost, though, because once you put in general anesthesia on the table, then you're looking at, you have to pay an anesthetist, you have to pay a hospital, and the cost is about, let me see now, the cost is about three to five times more for if your baby is a newborn versus if your baby is going to need a general anesthesia. Oh, that's significant. Yes. Yes, it is, it is, it is. And a lot of times that parents come to me and they say, you know, oh, well, I waited until he's one because I wanted to wait until he was old enough, you know? Yes. And I think I, under, I understand a mother's heart, yes. you know? And you say, yeah, I don't want them trouble my new little fresh baby. Mm. You know, wait until him fluff out a bit. But the truth of the matter is from a medical point of view, from a healing point of view, your baby is better equipped to manage it when they're younger and they heal better when they're younger. So um, I think it's good for us to have that discussion with parents before the baby is born, though, because it's, it's kind of tricky after your baby is born to be taking in all of that new information. So it, it's nice to be able to have the discussion. with. And a couple of parents come to me beforehand, before they even know if it's a boy, because they just want to know, you know? <laughs> yes. And I appreciate that because it, it helps to me. They, they have that information, you know, before so they can really make an informed decision for themselves. Well, I can't thank you enough, Karen. I think I have monopolized your time thoroughly. So I'll just ask one last question. And this is really me genuinely interested in your thoughts on this because. I ask everybody this when we're living in this wonderful country, and we answered some of this implicitly earlier. And um, we have these wonderful minds, bright individuals working, medical team, not only doctors, nurses, and so on, all medical personnel, personnel, excuse me. They, how would you, but our, our healthcare system, in my opinion, is could be better, let's put it that way. And you mentioned a couple of things, including health education and vaccination. Was there anything else looking from where you sit in which we could improve our healthcare system? Well, my 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 pet my pet thing is is mental health. I think that the there is a significant not only mental health, primary health care. Um, in, including mental health but there is there is very little resource for children who have mental health problems and as we see on the TV every day children have mental health problems yes, yes. nobody can say that this child is too young to have a mental health <laughs> problem <laughs> we are all very acutely aware of the fact that there is no age group for having issues with behavior issues, mental, and a lot of it comes from um, parents not being confident to cope or parents maybe needing some help in, in, in knowing what is the right thing to do. Because I really believe that 
every parent wants the best for their child, but they're not necessarily getting the information to be able to give their child the best. A lot of behavior issues come from parents not knowing what to do to change it. And we don't have the resources to support that. And then ultimately, now we talk about crime and violence. If we don't teach children how to live, how to function, how to frame their good and bad experiences, then we can't anticipate that they're going to turn out to be stellar citizens. So men- child mental health to me is a big, big gap in terms of what we're offering. And I don't mean psychiatrists either. You know, I mean psychologists. I mean social workers. Yes. That is where the need is. I was first introduced to the critical nature of this when Camp Bustamante started at Bustamante. And how I ended up involved in, in Camp Bustamante, I'm not sure because I'm a surgeon. I don't really have any business in <laughs> Bustamante. But I was very involved in it. And um, for the years that it ran, it ran for a couple of years. And I still have the report from, from that um, project because it is something that I really believe if we pay attention to prevention at that mental health level for kids, that's where we're gonna make the difference. And and we just we just don't we just don't have that in place right now. We really don't. I mean, I lived in another Caribbean country. Well, I've lived in a couple of Caribbean countries, yeah. but in one of in one country, every single high school had a master's level psychologist on staff. Mm-hmm. So children who needed counseling were getting counseling at school mm-hmm. and i was flabbergasted you know i mean clearly their budget requirements different from ours mm-hmm. but but um just the notion of that accessibility that accessibility we have so many kids who need one-on-one you know there was a time when i was thinking you know maybe we should do group this and group that but our kids are traumatized, man. They're traumatized. They need one-on-one care. We don't have enough people to give them one-on-one mm. care. Mm. I don't know. I don't know how we fill that gap, but I do believe that the mental health needs of children have to be aggressively addressed if we are hoping to really step forward into a bright future. We cannot step forward into a bright future without addressing child health needs. We can't. Oh, I, I really, I've never even thought about that. And uh, I really I get such interesting and wonderful responses to that question because it's something that troubles me. I think about it so much. So, this one, I really have to thank you. I think we have to lobby, see if we can get more of the budget in that direction. I don't know. It's, they seem to be preoccupied with other things. But it, Actually, it's... I and and I don't and I'm not cynical. I don't think mm-hmm. I'm cynical. But I I think too that a part of public education is to actually get support from private sector. I do not believe that the government alone can fill the gap. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we look when you look at what's happening, for example, in the states, there are huge grants and funds where people who have the money, you know fund research fund projects for children and so even in somewhere like the u.s it's not the government necessarily providing the individual services but there's a lot of capacity for private sector and for even for people to say in their will you know i want to leave x amount 
of money in my will to help provide child mental health. And so whereas I do think the government support and the government framework is critical, I think that we have to look beyond that and we have to any any means that can provide help should be explored. No means should be left because it's not X or it's not Y. Because if one person can give $5,000 for one therapy session, then it's one less therapy session that I have to figure out how we're going to get it. Exactly, because if a lot of the criminals seem to exhibit mental health disease that would impact the nation in other ways, only encouraging development of the youngsters. I mean, you know, Herbert, you've, you've heard of Herbert Gale, or you know of his work? He's a social anthropologist. I know this name. Yes. So Her, Herbert Gale, his, his work is really very interesting to me, and a lot of things that he talks about really come home to me, you know. So you have a kid who is, you have a boy who his mother beats him. She beats him because several reasons. One, he looks like his father. Two, she was sexually assaulted. That's how she got pregnant, right? Mm. So this mother is carrying her trauma for a sexual assault. She beats this child because he's bad. Yeah? Mm. And in favor in ugly papa. And she beat him and she beat him and he goes to school and he beats some other people. Mm. So I'm getting trouble and in school expel him. We go to another school now, other kids start picking on him, decide that they don't want nobody pick on him, so he's walking a knife, he'll stab a kid at the school or stab mm-hmm. after a child. Now he's 10 years old, and he gets expelled from a second school. Mother can't bother try to get him into a third school or whatever, so he kind of float around and got a church-based thing going on in the community for a couple of days a week, but he never really get back into the school system. This kid has never had care. You know, nobody has ever cared for him. When he reached 12, him kind of disappear. Mother don't know where I'm staying. By the time he's 15, he's properly entrenched in a gang. When he's 18, he kill a policeman or him kill a doctor or him kill a thing. And people say, boy, these wicked criminals. Yes. <laughs> but we, we have offered this child nothing. Right. You know, and every time, every time I hear about these really gruesome incidents, I wonder in my head, what the child who grew up to do this, what did that child endure? And how can I make sure that the next child coming up doesn't get to that point? Because we can't turn them back when they reach 18, 20, 25, and they don't make it to 25. We can't turn them back at that point. We can do something when they're kids. So to complain about the vicious murder, you know, because they're an adult now and 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 disavow ourselves of our responsibility for the 15, 16, 17, 18 years when they were a child. We have to we have to address child health in its fullness, its psychosocial fullness, yes. or we cannot turn back crime and violence. We cannot live peacefully in our homes. We cannot look at a bright future. I cannot thank you enough. And on that note, I think we can wrap it.